Hey, Father Church, my name is Daniel Wagner. I'm the college and young adults pastor and probably one of two or three people that work here that's cool enough to walk up to that song right there. Uh, Daniel Hicks showed us that and I was like, man, I don't know what's gonna happen if John Wood has to get up here <laughs> to that song. It's not gonna work well. John's not here. John, if you're watching online, what's up? He'll text me by the time I'm done. Hey, I'm really excited to kick off this series where we're taking four weeks to look at the heart in a series we're calling, calling Heart Matters because it's uh, about the matters of the heart, and also it's because your heart matters. Now, we live in the American West, and a lot of the thinking that we've done about the heart comes from Greek influence. Just right off the bat, I thought I'd go anthropological on you guys. But really, whenever we think about the Bible, we need to think about a Hebrew influence on the heart and Hebrew thinking about the heart in which when the Old Testament and then the New Testament throws back to what the Old Testament says about the heart, the heart is essentially summarized as this. It is the seat of where all thinking, feeling, and choosing come from. And more than that, the heart depicts our orientation as people to God. So it shows our orientation towards God. Uh, A pure heart, an unpure heart, What's the purity or unpurity in relationship to? Not necessarily how good or bad of a person you are intrinsically or how religious you are, but it's whether or not your heart is oriented, whether it's directed, faced, submitted towards God. And in that, it's where we do all of our thinking, feeling, and choosing. So let that be the backdrop of the next four weeks here on the heart that I have the privilege to kick off. And when I'm talking about the heart here, there's no better backdrop, I think, than to tell you guys a story about American history, and principally that one that involves dirt or dust. This is a picture of a giant dust cloud, uh, which were called by many names in the 1930s in America, uh, everything from dust storm to black blizzard because of the way that day would essentially become night whenever these large dust clouds would sweep across the country. As I was thinking about a backdrop for this this week, I remembered this part of American history. Uh, I heard a pastor use this in a different passage, but I think it fits here really well, perhaps even better. If you'll give me the time to tell you a story about the American West and settlement. See, in 1909, uh, America passed another Homestead Act, and in that, they basically said, hey, look, you know, 1900s, we're doing pretty well. Economically, we're coming out of some stuff. Why don't you just go out there and get you a patch of dirt in America? But by 1909, a lot of the good pieces of land had been taken. So what happened was a lot of Texas and Oklahoma, uh, Iowa, parts of Nebraska, yeah, I think those are the states I'm talking about, about 100 million acres of America were settled and uh, what happened is that these people went out with aspirations of farming. Some people who had some idea of how to farm, but a lot of people that were just new. They picked up whatever farmer's almanac. They hoped that someone who was at the local town square would kind of show them the ropes. And what happened in the late you know, 1910s is that wheat was planted, and wheat was like the commodity of the time. It was where people made a lot of money. It created this thing in the 1920s called the wheat bubble which uh, is just weird whenever you think about wheat being that thriving of a product that it would create something we'd call the wheat bubble. But like a bubble, eventually that bubble burst, and what happened is that the abnormal rain in those parts of the country during the 1920s 
gave way to this incredible drought in the 1930s. So all these people that had made lots of money and all these people that were seeking opportunity there in the Midwest to make money on wheat, what happened was that that wheat eventually died because under high heat, wheat did not have very deep roots. And when the wheat died, something worse happened. All of this dust became to be kicked up and they created in these these massive storms. These dust storms that we had on the screen there, they were as much as uh, 200 feet wide, sometimes 2,000 feet tall, estimations say. They'd travel as fast at 60 miles an hour, and they would rip through these towns in the Midwest. There were people who, when they were caught in them, they would sometimes become blind because of the way that dust and dirt ground into their eyelids. People were wearing masks back then. We just came out of a season of masks for most of us. People were wearing masks back then to keep from inhaling the dirt and getting dust pneumonia. About 7,000 people in an eight-year period died from dust pneumonia, just having too much dust in their lungs. So what they would do in these houses is they would tape off every window, every door. They would stick things underneath the door frame so that they didn't have to wake up with all this dust in their house if a, a dust storm came overnight. And what happened most of the time is in the morning, these families would have to wake up and they would shovel and scoop pounds and pounds of dust out of their home. So what that resulted in for a lot of people was leaving. You know, I think great literature is often wasted on people that are in school. The Grapes of Wrath is one of the depictions of that. It's a family that left from the Midwest and went to California seeking jobs, but conveniently, or inconveniently rather, at the same time, America was in the throes of a depression. So there was no opportunity for these people who just 10, 15 years ago were thriving, had more money than they knew what to do with before this wheat bubble burst. Now, why am I telling you a story about dirt? Because I think it frames the conversation we're going to have. This is how the, uh, you know, the dust bowl was eventually remedied in the late 1930s. The Works Progress Administration put out posters like this. I think we have a picture of the poster. If we don't, that's cool. But they put out uh, these big job-seeking opportunities for people as a way to reinvigorate the economy and come out of the Great Depression. And what they did was plant these shelter belts. Here, I'll use this screen right here. So what you see here is just a bunch of flat dirt. I'm looking at a Midwestern friend right there. You can just see for miles. But they put these trees and they would plant these trees to create wind belts, essentially, shelter belts. And what that did over time was break up these massive dust storms that were wreaking havoc. Now, the problem with all of this was that the thing that grew before the wheat was prairie grass, just flat, good old American grass. But the problem with uh, harvesting and planting this wheat is that they killed like I said, about 100 million acres of this prairie grass. And the thing about grass is, is it's not impressive, doesn't look cool. For most of you, you probably get into your 40s as men before you start really bragging about your grass and complimenting grass. But for most of us, grass is just grass. But this grass had these deep roots that kept this dust together. It was only when this grass was pulled up and killed when they were seeking something better, that this problem was created. So these shelter belts, what they did was create places for this grass to grow back, and 
no dust bowl in that portion of the country anymore because the grass came back and did what the grass was supposed to do. And I'll say that you and I, in our heart of hearts, are a lot like those people seeking money in the wheat bubble in the American Midwest in the 1920s. We say, hey, look, this thing is here. It's a fine thing, but I'm going to get it out of the way because there's something better. We pull up, pull up the grass to plant the wheat. And what I'd say is that this is true for you and this is true for me, that as people, we want to reject boundaries, but often we fail to see that those boundaries are things that are set up for a reason. You know, let's put it on the screen. We want to reject boundaries, but often we see that those boundaries are set up for a reason. Now, let's think about this. You, in, uh, in your life, you probably lock your doors at night when you go to bed. You have a house or an apartment or a whatever that has something that resembles four walls so that you're fenced in. Let's think about this. If you love a pet, if you're a pet person, let's go dogs. Dogs are the easy one. This is a church that loves dogs, and I struggle to find my place here. But... <laughs> Let's, let's say you got a dog, right? You got a dog, what are you going to do? You're going to put it inside your house where you, it's safe, or you're going to put it outside in a fence. Now they even have these fancy underground fences, right? So even if your dog doesn't think that there's a fence there, you slowly shock them, and somehow that's humane and good for their protection. <laughs> but a fence is great, right? You know that the fence needs to be there. Maybe your dog doesn't. But think about this. Why do you put the fence there for your dog? Is it just so you can keep it there and look at it and Open the back door and go, yep, dog's still there. Probably not. You'd be a bad pet owner if you did that. It's so that you can keep that dog safe, right? Safe from what? Well, safe from other things that could hurt your dog. If you have a small dog, maybe it's birds of prey or other large dogs. If your dog's like my last dog and he decides that he wants to bite people in the face or dogs in the face all the time, then you're protecting him from himself. Uh, you know, maybe... For you, you don't want your dog to get hit by a car because they chase the wheel and they don't know what to do with the wheel once they get it. That's a different sermon for a different day. But we see that we protect the things that are precious to us. But often in our own lives, we're not doing any protecting. We live our lives with often just a degree of maybe reckless abandon or foolishness or lack of consideration. And what I want to propose to you today is that even though we want to reject boundaries, often boundaries are there for a reason. I'm going to read a very long quote by G.K. Chesterton. I'll try to read it as quickly as possible. He's much smarter than me. English, a great uh, thinker in the early 1900s who wrote both politically and theologically. That's very impressive, very hard to do. And Chesterton said this, in the matter of reforming things, that's bringing change. Think about this. This is a political writing where he's talking about bringing change, making things different, better, or worse. In the matter of reforming things is distinct from deforming them. There is one plain and simple principle, a principle which will probably be called a paradox. There exists in such a case a certain institution or law. Now let's say, for the sake of simplicity, a fence or a gate is erected across a road, right? So Chesterton's saying, hey, look, picture this fence, picture this gate in the middle of the road. The more modern type of reformer goes gaily up to it and says, I don't see the use of this, let's clear it away. To which the more intelligent type of reformer will do well to answer. If you don't see the use of it, I certainly won't let you clear it away. Go away and think. Then when you come back and tell me what you do see the use of it could be, I may allow you to destroy it. Now, this paradox rests on the most elementary common sense. The gate or fence did not grow there, 
All right, so this is Chesterton, and he's saying, hey, look, imagine you come up to a fence, and you say, I don't think this fence needs to be there anymore. Let's take it down. And he's challenging, saying, let's think about how the fence got there. Obviously, it did not just grow there. Anybody seen a gate or a fence grow out of the ground before? No, cool, me neither, and neither had Chesterton. It was not set up by somnambulists, those are sleepwalkers, who built it in their sleep. It's highly improbable that it was put there by escaped lunatics who, for some reason, loose on the street, decided to put a fence there. Some person had some good reason for thinking it would be a good thing for somebody. And until we know what the reason was, we really cannot judge whether the reason was reasonable. Now, it's extremely probable that we have overlooked some of the whole aspect of the question if something set up by human beings like ourselves seems to be entirely meaningless or mysterious. Now, there are reformers who get over this difficulty by assuming that all their fathers were fools, but if that be so, we can only say that folly appears to be a hereditary disease. That's a sick burn in the 1900s. Sick burn. But the truth is that nobody has any business to destroy a social institution until he has really seen it as a historical institution. Now, if he knows how it arose and what the purpose it was supposed to serve, he may really be able to say that they were bad purposes, that they have since become bad purposes, or that they are purposes which no longer are served. But if he simply stares at the thing as a senseless monstrosity that has somehow sprung up in his path, it is he and not the traditionalist who is suffering from an illusion. All right, long quote, moral of the story, things get put there for a reason. And for us to say, hey, I don't need that. That's not very great critical thought. So I'd challenge you today, if you're a follower of Jesus, to think about some things that God's put up in your life as boundaries or barriers or fences, perhaps, so that you can follow Jesus in the John 10, 10 abundant life. And if you're not a believer, I'd challenge you today to think, might my life be better served submitting to a God who desires my protection? So this is what I want us to look at today as a framing principle, that the book of Proverbs gives us a guide to fence off our lives from foolishness. It gives us a guide to fence off our lives from foolishness. And in this passage, Proverbs 4, which lots of you have encountered in some way, I'd ask you, and the balance of our time to give me fresh eyes to think about how we can look at this together in a way where the Holy Spirit would reteach or help you perhaps unlearn some things. Some of you may have had a verse in here used against you in a way you feel restricted, like it's been uh, something that's caused you to live uh, in an overly considerate way of your sexuality, uh, that you'd guard your heart. And I'd say that a Christian ethic is a sexual ethic. So there's an important aspect of your life submitted to the Holy Spirit and to Jesus as you follow him. But let's look at many more things whenever we think about guarding our heart. So let's look at Proverbs 4. We're going to do 10 through the end of the chapter. And I'll read this. Hear my son, accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom, and I have led you in paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let it go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on it, for they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they've made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full 
day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Now, my son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear, to my, your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. I got one more? Yeah. Okay, that's the end. There we go. Uh, I thought we were going through 27. So this passage that you're familiar with, has this central point of guarding your heart, keeping your heart. And we'll get to the specifics of that later, and here's what I want to say. We've got three more weeks on the heart. I wish there were so many more things I could do, but I don't want to take anything from anyone else who's preaching. But I will say this. What I'm going to do here is strange and very weird, and this is worth the price of admission today. But when you think about your heart, first of all, this is a beef product, okay? All right. When you think about your heart and your life, you're probably thinking, hey, like I'm good. I I don't need any protection. I don't need any guarding. I don't need anybody to look after me. I'm a big boy. I'm a big girl. I can take care of myself. But I just want to ask, like, can you? I think there's a reason that the Bible talks about the heart as something that's vulnerable and something that's soft and squishy because this cow heart right here is the same way, right? Like, first of all, cow, not person. Don't take me to prison. I didn't steal this from UMC. I bought this online. It's like three ninety-eight. <laughs> if, if you're interested in a cow heart, I can text you the link later. But you look at this, right? Like, this thing is soft and squishy and vulnerable outside of its proper place. Some of you are getting queasy. I'm going to put this back. I'm sorry. Glove. It, it's vulnerable, and so are you. Like, you can think that you can do it all on your own, but I challenge you today to think back in recent history where have I found myself at the end of myself? Where was my strength not enough? Where was my personal hope in myself not enough? Where have I been betrayed or let down or disappointed? And I would say that oftentimes those are things that occur when you're outside of this path of wisdom that Jesus calls you to walk on. As you follow him, he calls you to a path of wisdom. And that looks like changing the way that you live your life. Now, I don't want this to be a Christian TED Talk. I don't want this to be like moralism, but but Jesus is working in our life sanctification that's becoming more like him, growing in holiness, and that's gonna change the way that you live. If you've been following Jesus for a while and you're the same old, same old, I would challenge you. There's some growth areas in your life. And I'm only gonna put up a few of these boundaries that we find in this chapter in Proverbs 4, but there are many, many more things to put in your life to guard your heart. But I want to honor this text that we're preaching through here, so let's put these up. Imagine that somebody, I don't know why, but is trying to come and get this beef heart from me, 
and I have these barriers here that I've put up to protect him. This is the visual that Solomon gives here to his son and to his nation, Israel, that God's preserved for us through time in the Bible. And these are things that he winds up and lines out that we should walk in. So I want to give you six things really quickly as we begin to land the plane that you can put in your life that will help you guard your heart. The first is a value for wisdom. It's this hunger, this value for wisdom. Let's read verse 11 again. I've taught you the way of wisdom. I've led you in paths of uprightness. But let's say you're like, you know what? I don't really care about wisdom. Like, I'm just going to do my own thing, and uh, I'm not worried about this. You know, wisdom, like, what is it anyway? I challenge you, uh, Proverbs 1, the first couple of verses there outline wisdom. Wisdom is both growth in how to know which decisions to make, growth in intelligence, growth, growth in discernment, and growth in things like solving riddles and thinking critically, but it's wisdom and instruction in the Lord. That's what wisdom is. But if you'd say, hey, look, I, don't, I just don't have time. I don't really care. Like, God, I know that you have things you want me to navigate through life better. Maybe I'm not making the wisest choices. Um, but you know what? I, I'm, I'm just going to, like, do my own thing. Well, I would say that that's a way that you could be exposing your heart to Satan who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. That you would make decisions where you would go down this path and, and, and you wouldn't know how you got there or you wouldn't know what led you to this or maybe you look up and, and you realize, oh man, I, I made a wrong decision back there and it's colored the rest of my life. Now look, God's a God of forgiveness and grace and redemption and restoration and if you've made an unwise choice, man, so have I several. But God is working something in us where he pulls us back and he sets us on this path of wisdom. But we've got to value wisdom. Like, do you care? Do you want wisdom? Do you want to be wiser? Is wisdom just for the gray-haired people at the end of their life who tell you great stories about how they walked uphill both ways in the snow 30 miles to school? Or is it something that you would desire? I'm telling you, as a young guy, I want to get wisdom right in my life early. And I'll tell you this, if you read the Bible, you will find that God often says, when you pray and you ask things, I will give them to you. And one of the strongest, one of the most emphatic things that God says in regard to what he'll give us is in James 1, verse 5, wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, pray earnestly to God who gives it liberally or without withholding, if you have a problem with the word liberal. God gives wisdom graciously. He will pour it out on you if you seek it from him. Pray for wisdom. God will be faithful to give it. Put him to the test. Ask for wisdom and he'll give it to you. But without this value for wisdom, you know, you run a risk of your heart not being guarded. The second is this idea of unhampered steps. If you say, hey, look, you know what? I'm, I'm really timid about the way that I'm living my life. Like, what, what if I do make the wrong decision? Or, or like, what if I tell this lie and I get found out later? Or what if uh, I do this one thing with this one person and then they get mad at me and then I can't live with myself because they're mad at me and I'm living for their approval? This idea of unhampered steps is found in other places in the Bible. I love the way that Psalm 18 and Psalm 119 talk about unhampered steps. And it's this picture, right? Like if I'm walking on a tightrope or if I'm walking on the edge of the stage here, I'm going to be really cautious, right? I'm taking little bitty steps because my footing's not sure. My footing's not secure. But unhampered steps 
Psalm 18 and 119 talk about it as long strides. That as you follow Jesus, you can do this confidently. As you're walking in his will and you're walking in his way and you're keeping his commandments and you're prioritizing love of him and love of others, you can take these long, confident steps. And our perspective and our desire should be, God, I'm going to follow you and you're going to take care of me so I can take these long steps in you. Faithful walking with unhampered steps. This next one, a righteous hunger, a hunger for righteousness, right? We think about Jesus saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness in Matthew 5. We go, you know what? I don't really care about righteousness. I care about getting mine. I don't care about my relation to God. I don't care about if I'm I'm sinful. I don't care if I'm disobeying him. I'm just going to go out. I'm going to do me, and I'm going to get mine. I don't care if I'm, if I'm serving people, if I'm, if I'm walking in a way that's full of justice. I don't care if I'm giving my life to other people or if I'm following God in the command of generosity and the tithe and the offering. Like, like I don't care. I don't care about doing right. Well, I would say that that's a way that you can risk exposing your heart. This next idea of building others up. Building others up, right? Let's look at this. They cannot sleep unless they've done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they've made someone stumble. Now look, I'm pretty selfish. God's working that out of me. A lot of you are, you know, probably selfish too. Just kind of how it goes as people. But this idea that they are robbed of sleep unless they make someone else stumble. They've seen something in someone else that they have that's better or nicer. This person's farther ahead. They're smarter. They're better looking. They're more well-connected. Whatever it is, it's consuming these evil people, these fools, to the point where they can't sleep unless they've gotten their own personal justice. Envy creeps in deep. We're looking at that in a couple of weeks. But how do you interact with people? Are people commodities for you? connections for you to get what you want? Or are you committed to keeping your heart in a holy posture and you're saying, I see you're made in the image of God. And because of that, you're so valuable, deeply valuable. And I'm going to leverage my life to build you up in faith. The next one, this idea of pure speech. Put away crooked speech and devious talk far, far from you. It's this idea that's more than just don't lie, right? Like I think we could take a simplified version and say that. But it's this idea that your speech has a lot of power. We've looked at the tongue here and how the tongue can turn the whole body. Your words give life or they give death. What are your words doing? And I'm not just talking about online. Like we see you guys Facebook posting and tweeting and doing stuff on Instagram but I'm talking about in your life, with the people you live with, with the people you work with. What is your speech doing? God has given words to build others up, to declare the gospel, to see salvation. He's chosen words. They are powerful. So what are you doing with your words? And this last one I want us to look at is this, uh, this concept of eyes full of light. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness, and they do not know over what they stumble. I did this this morning, and I don't know if you guys are like me, but if you like wake up in the morning and, and you're like trying to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, 
but you don't want to wake up, what do you do? You like close your eyes, right? And you like kind of feel around, because apparently if you open your eyes, you're not ever going to go to sleep ever, ever again. So you look way cooler doing this in the middle of the night. But this is this idea of people who don't choose wisdom, who don't guard their heart, who are influenced by foolishness. It's that your life can be like a deep darkness where you look up and you say, I I don't even know how I got here. I don't even know how I got here. What am I doing? What's my life for? What's my purpose? Where's the end of me? And a life submitted to God and a life seeking wisdom, a life where you, you want these eyes full of light. Matthew 6, Jesus talks about the eyes as the lamp of the body, both a reflection of what's inside of you coming out and what's outside of you coming in. What are you putting in front of your eyes and what are your eyes looking for? But here's what you see, right? Like heart, exposed, gross. Sorry if I made anybody throw up today. Gross. But how do we do this? How do we keep our heart? How do we keep our heart? This Hebrew word translated often, guard, protect, keep your heart, The Hebrew concept is this word mishmar, and it's this idea of being under house arrest or imprisoned or being guarded or being observed. It's this deep value of I have this thing and I don't want to let it go anywhere. I got to keep what's in here in here and I got to keep what's out out there. Do you care about your heart that much? Are you throwing these and other things out of the way? for convenience or pride? Or are you humbly seeking to be transformed? How do we do this? How can we do this? Well, in Jesus, we have unlimited and uninterrupted access to the wisdom required for our life through a new and protected heart. Through a new and protected heart. Now, a new heart, who gave us the new heart? When I think about a new heart, I love this. I love being in Jackson. I love being able to see UMC from my office. I'm going to show you a picture of Dr. James Hardy. He is a, you know, a legend. This is one of UMC's claim to fame. Some of you are physicians. You know this story better than I do. But Dr. Hardy performed one of the first uh, human heart transplants that happened. And he did it in a way that wasn't um, you know, human-to-human. He used another heart without getting into the ethical things about that. That's not what we're doing here. He put a new heart in somebody because he knew it could be done and he knew that a heart was essential for life. It was his work there that secured a couple of months later a team in South Africa doing the very first human heart transplant. And I know that in a room like this or people watching online, listening later, that you've been blessed by probably someone who's undergone heart surgery or or had a new heart. But we can't give ourselves a new heart. (laughs) Only someone else can. And God, for a long time, said that for his people of every tribe, he was going to put a new heart in them. Let's end with this passage in Ezekiel 11. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I'll put within them. I'll remove their heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people 
and I will be their God. Bound up in our faith is a new heart. Do you value your new heart? What are you letting in? What are you throwing out of the way for sake of convenience? God has put things in your life around you so that you can follow him and be protected. You're not going to make it through the world unscathed. Nobody does. Nobody's perfect. This is a place for grace. But do you want to keep your heart with all vigilance? Do you want to guard your heart? Are you concerned about the things that you watch and the places you go and the feelings that you feel? Submit those things to the Lord. He's given you a new heart and he wants you to keep it healthy in a relationship with him. And we follow a great God who walked in perfect wisdom. Jesus came as a descendant of Solomon who kept all these things perfectly. And only because of his death on the cross could he say, hey, look, if you want to follow the way of wisdom, follow me. Because I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're empowered to live a wise life. And I pray that you'd examine your heart. That you might seek to follow him and to make him known. If you guys will stand up, let's pray together. Lord, we love you, and I'm thankful for every man and woman and child in this room, or for the families and the workplaces, or the homes they represent. Each one of them made beautifully in your image. Lord, worth so much. God, often we, we don't give ourselves enough respect, but we're made in your image, precious. So precious, Lord, that you died to give us a new heart, to transform us, to shape who we are, and what we do in the world. Lord, it's as much about us as it is about others. So God, would we be a church, would we be people here that seek to protect our heart? Lord, it's precious and it's fragile. And we all have an end to ourselves. But Lord, you are our ultimate end, our chief aim, to know you and to make you known. So, Lord, would we in purity and, Lord, with intentionality, follow your way of wisdom? And would you provide for us, God, wisdom richly that we might guard our heart and seek to honor you all the days of our lives? Lord, we love you. Receive our worship now. We ask these things in your great name, Jesus. Amen.